We have been talking about the history of worship, and perhaps more than the other lessons, understanding the history of worship, especially as we get to it in the Puritan era and in the Presbyterians, for the Presbyterians, we need to talk about the English Reformation, and we have we started talking about the English Reformation, and we got to spend lots of time with Henry VIII last week and his wives and all of his desperate attempts to get away from the Roman Catholic Church so that he could have his some church authority that would finally give him a divorce from Catherine. And eventually, though, we last week we talked about Edward VI. And Edward was a young king. He was surrounded by Protestants who began the work of Reformation in England. And yet we also got to a spot where we basically said, um, uh-oh, something bad's about to happen. Uh, we had six years with King Edward VI. And then I mentioned that we have Bloody Mary. And that was my cliffhanger. I, that's why you're all here before, because I said Bloody Mary and that sounded creepy and you thought I need to show up. So, um, but actually, before we talk about Mary, we need to talk about somebody named Jane Grey. Raise your hand if you know who Jane Grey is. You're going to get a weak version of Jane Grey here this morning. Um, because, but, and I actually thought about leaving it out because Jane is such a small piece of the story. Um, she's only the queen for nine days, and so they call her the nine-day queen. Some, some do anyway, depending on how you count it. If you, if you, depending on if you count from when Edward dies or if you count from when she's proclaimed queen. But here's what happens. Jane Grey, um, Edward is Mary's brother, but... Edward also knows that Mary is a Catholic, and he also knows, he has a pretty good guess what happens to England if a Catholic comes to the throne. And so he makes a, um, he names his successor, not his sister, but Jane Grey. He names Jane Grey as his successor before he dies. The hope here, I'm going to move this away from me physically again. Um, The hope here, once again, is that is that perhaps a Protestant could be on the throne and England can be protected from great bloodshed, great division. And so she is the great-granddaughter of Henry VII. She's a grandniece of Henry VIII, and she's the cousin of Edward. So that's how she's related. Um, But certainly nothing like a sister, right? Mary is far closer uh, genetically than Jane is. So Edward's hope, though, is to keep a Roman Catholic from becoming queen. He dies on July 6th, 1553. Jane is proclaimed queen of England. In those days when you're proclaimed but you haven't been coronated yet, you go to the Tower of London. And so Jane Grey gets taken to the Tower of London until the time of her coronation. But as soon as Edward dies, Mary swings into action. She begins to gather support, and she gathers enough support that she is proclaimed queen on July 19th. And she has more support than Jane Grey does. Um, even, though, even though Edward named her his successor, um, as far as people are concerned, as far as the, 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 the support that Mary can muster, it is more important that Mary is his sister than what Edward's wishes were. And also, I think there's also this background suspicion that because Edward is so young, he was manipulated into this. And so there are a lot of political arguments to be made that Mary should be the one that sits on the throne. So in September of that year, Parliament officially declares Mary the Queen and Jane a usurper. And initially, at least least according to some sources, Mary's plan was not to execute Jane. 
But then it was pointed out to her that Jane would always be a threat, that Jane would always be some kind of threat and she has to be removed. And so she was executed February 12, 1554 by beheading. And so um, there are many stories told about how it happened, how she composed herself with great dignity. Um, She was a believer in Jesus Christ. There were great attempts that were made by the people who persecuted her, trying to get her to come over to Roman Catholicism, to come over to uh, the Roman Catholic Church's view on justification by faith alone. Jane was only 16 years old, but she had a great understanding of the Bible, a great understanding of Scripture and the Gospel, and she couldn't do it. She couldn't uh, give in to the, the appeals that they made to her, and so ultimately she was executed. But this is a great Protestant effort to keep uh, Roman Catholicism from becoming the religion of the land in England, um, and Jane Grey deserves to be remembered. Uh, and she is, thankfully. Um, Now, Mary, though, so Mary is a Catholic. Um, Immediately upon becoming queen, she repeals the act of supremacy from 1554. Remember that? That that was an act that basically named uh, Henry VIII as the king, as the head of the church. Uh, She repeals that. Who is the head of the church again? The Pope is now the head of the church in England. Uh, uh, She hangs a crucifix in the chapel. Probably not she personally, but she... Make sure a crucifix gets back there into the chapel. Uh, and she sets about doing her work. And her work, the goal of the work is return to the church to the days of her father. The Latin mass is restored. The book of common prayer is gone. She places Cardinal Pole as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, <clears throat> the Pope absolves England for the sin of separating from Rome. So, you know, this is what it takes. To, to, you know, she's, he, he forgives England for separating Uh, And then we have public executions of about 300 Protestants that take place. This is where the name Bloody Mary comes from. Um, There are heresy trials and executions, including Jane Grey. Jane Grey is one of them. But I want to talk about a couple of of those that that, uh, Mary had executed. Um, One of them is a man named Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was a gifted preacher in England. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get emotionally choked up, but whenever I'm around the house and I want to give my wife a lecture on Hugh Latimer I, and Nicholas Ridley, I end up crying. So I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's not my plan. Um, <laughs> so anyway, Hugh Latimer, it's just so funny. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> I lose a loved one and I may not cry, but get me to talk about Hugh Latimer and you might get some tears. Um, so, so Hugh Latimer is an opponent of Mary. He's an opponent of her goals. He is a preacher in, in England. He gets arrested. He gets taken to Oxford along with Nicholas Ridley. Nicholas Ridley is the Bishop of London. And both of these men are burned alive at the stake. Now, we know we have a, we have a good account of what took place with Ridley and Latimer because of John Fox. If you've heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs, then you may have heard of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley especially. Um, Fox records the moment that they initially brought the sticks and laid them under each man. So when you're going to be burned alive, you actually want an incredible fire. Uh, and actually the story of Nicholas Ridley is a story of why you want as many sticks and as hot of a fire as humanly possible. So they bring the sticks and they lay them down under each man. And Hugh Latimer looked over at his brother in Christ and he gave him these incredible words of encouragement that had become so famous. 
Um, you've probably heard these words before. Maybe you didn't remember who said it, but um, Hugh looks at him and says, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle at, by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And so you were about to die and know that this matters, right? That's what he tells his brother. And Latimer apparently was taken by the flames fairly quickly. Um, again, that's what you want. Ridley, on the other hand, had a horrible experience. The fire burned his lower half, but his upper half survived. And so his death was slow and horrible and agonizing. And Fox records in his book of martyrs, uh, Ridley just kept crying out, Lord, take me. Let the fire come. I cannot burn. I cannot burn. Um, He's becoming desperate and he begs the Lord to show mercy quickly to him. And it was such a horrible and pathetic sight. That Fox says everyone in the crowd who had an ounce of conscience wept openly and kept praying for the Lord to take Ridley home to be with him. Um, Sometimes the Lord works quickly and mercifully like he did for Latimer. And sometimes he allows his saints to suffer as he did for Ridley. Um, We can't understand God's mysterious providence. Um, But this this is how Mary dealt with Latimer and Ridley. They were meant to be made examples of. There was also, I have to say, and this is not something that only Roman Catholics practiced in the Reformation period. Um, Everybody used burning at the stake. And part of the, I I think cowardice of burning at the stake is that, in a sense, there is no executioner. It is simply the flames that take them. And that's meant to be almost seen as a sign of judgment. And you're able to wash your hands and say, well, it was the flames that took this person. It wasn't me. And so I, I believe that that's probably what the executioners would have said regarding Latimer and, and Ridley as well. Thomas Cranmer's executed. Um, somebody was just telling me this morning. They went and got a book of, of uh, Cranmer's collects and we're reading them. I'm glad. They're, they're amazing prayers. Um, as much as, uh, as uh, Thomas Cranmer served the church, he was also executed. Now, here's what happens with Cranmer, though. Uh, Cranmer is afraid. Um, he is afraid. He knows what happens to heretics and he knows that he is one. And so before he dies, he recants his views on the Lord's Supper. And he took back his recantations later. He said he, he said he genuinely believed what he had published on the Eucharist. He was sorry that he recanted. He didn't want to recant. Basically, he was put to death for believing what I say each Sunday when we have the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, they took him to die in the same place as Latimer and Ridley. Again, just imagine after hearing the sad tale of Nicholas Ridley, how fearful it must be to think of going to the stake, right? It's not a slow death. It's a slow death. It's not a quick one. And um, he was ashamed of himself. And he declared that because he had recanted initially and because he had written it out uh, with his own hand, that he would put his hand into the flame first so that his flame was the first to face judgment. He was so sorrowful that he had ever recanted what, he, what the gospel says and certainly what we believe about the Lord's Supper. And so according to Fox in the Book of Martyrs, he did just that. He put his hand in the flames and he held it there and his hand was the first to be taken. So I'm just giving you a picture here in part of the, the importance of, you know, as Christians, we get so comfortable. Um, we, sometimes, we sometimes get really hung up on small things that we experience. And we're like, see, I'm being persecuted. And, 
it's important for us to put that into context of church history and to just thank the Lord for the kind of persecution we experience, which is so minimal compared to some of what our forefathers have experienced. That doesn't minimize what we go through, but it does put it into context at least. Um, and now, you, and you also understand why she earns the name Bloody Mary. Um, I'm not very nice to Mary. She deserves every bit of scorn she's received from history. Sorry, not a fan. Um, she reigns for five years. During the five years of her reign, Protestants are, are displaced. Some of the Protestants go to France. Some of the Protestants go to Germany. Many of them go to Switzerland. They go to Geneva. And who do they learn under and who do they worship alongside of? Calvin. They go to, they go to Geneva and they learn from John Calvin. Um, you will notice uh, one of the confessions of sin that we use here. Uh, you may have noticed it says the English congregation at Geneva. One of those is from the English congregation at Geneva. This is them. This is their confession that they used in their liturgy when they worship. Because, you know, it's an English, you know, you, if, if you're listening to a service that pr- is preached in, in French, then you're going to have a really hard time following along. If you're English, you don't speak that language. So the English congregations had their own services uh, while they were in Geneva. Uh, Mary dies in 1558 uh, at 42 years of age. Cardinal Pole dies 12 hours after her. So no one needs to remove him. The Lord removed him. Um, who becomes queen after Mary? What's that? Elizabeth. Yes, Elizabeth becomes queen. Elizabeth I becomes queen. And she is queen for a good chunk of time. Uh, she is queen for like over 40 years. She's, she's queen for over 40 years. And when Elizabeth comes to power, her interest is stability. She wants stability. Um, She wants predictability. Uh, She wants uniformity across the English church. So she establishes Episcopalianism. Episcopalianism is different from Presbyterianism. In Presbyterianism, the ruling elders and teaching elders of the church all serve together and they oversee the work of the church. In Episcopalianism, who rules? The bishop. Now, biblically speaking, bishop and elder are the same thing, but let's just let's go with their lingo for a minute. In in the Episcopalian system, a bishop is not the same thing as just any other elder. He's somebody who's higher than the other elders, and he tells the other elders what they should do and how their churches should be run. So in Episcopalianism, there is a hierarchy of individuals who tell those under them how things are supposed to be run. That's what she establishes in England as the practice. Elizabeth, though, if you'll remember, what was Henry called in the act of supremacy? The defender of the faith is what the pope called him. But as far as the church is concerned, he is the head of the church. Here's the problem. A lot of people in England protest the idea that a woman can be called the head of the church. And so Elizabeth says, okay, fine. I am the supreme governor of the church. So <laughs> now you're all fine with it. And so, <laughs> so she was placating them, which is kind of interesting to think about, that she still, she still realizes there are practicalities to her work. It would be a good idea to bend on some of these things. And so she does. She establishes a new act of supremacy. Remember, Mary repealed it. She displaces the pope again. And this time, finally, the pope never becomes the head of the church in England after this. Um, she was committed to having a uniform, moderate Protestant English church. When I say moderate, what I mean is 
When you think of the English Reformation, you think, should think of these two wings. Um, on the one hand, you have, um, you have the Calvinistic wing. And on the other hand, you have the, um, um, actually, what would I call the other wing? Um, the other wing would be like the theologically broad wing. So you've got like the Calvinists over here who really think and know, uh, rightly I think, how worship should be done, what the theology of the church should be. And then you have this other side that's much more open-ended in terms of its own view. What's that? Pietist. There you go. Uh, I'll probably have a better word for it later uh, when I'm not standing here in front of you. Um, But she wants a moderate Protestant English church. um, Planned to pick up the reforms of Edward and go with it. She reinstitutes the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. She's committed in the long term to make English people accustomed to this. So she's, you know, how do you get people accustomed to it? You just do it. Um, When you're going to do something new, what do you do? You just do the thing and you keep doing it and you stay the course. And, And in Elizabeth's mind, if you're swerving all over and you're changing things all the time... People never have anything to, be, to get used to, and that's not healthy for England. So she's, she's committed to doing this. Um, effectively, what happens? England becomes a Protestant nation. Catholics are marginalized. Um, the people who Elizabeth is, is utilizing in all of this are men by the name of Matthew Parker, William Cecil, and Sir Nicholas Bacon. So these are the guys that are sort of leading Elizabeth's uh, reforms, Elizabeth's establishment. Um, the Marian bishops, and by that we mean like the bishops that Mary put in place. Some of them, there was only one of them who actually was willing to submit to the act of supremacy. The rest of them get displaced and sent into exile. Um, one of the first things that takes place as soon as the Roman Catholics are out, iconoclasm happens across England, right? Because for five years, the, what have the Catholics been doing? They've been putting up crucifixes. They've been putting up images of Jesus. They've been uh, setting up altars again in the churches. Remember, they had tables. Now they're back to altars. Now they're back to tables again. Um, Books and vestments had been reintroduced by Mary. Well, they got carried into the streets and publicly burned. So it's trying to sort of say, this is the final thing. We're not doing this anymore. Um, and so she's, and so the, the picture of, of what the England is supposed to be is something middle between Geneva and Rome, a moderate church. That's what they want. So Elizabeth is also very clear. You can't be a minister in England and deny the supremacy of the crown over the church. You can't be a minister in England unless you, uh, unless you confess that the crown is superior to the church. You couldn't refuse the oath of loyalty to her and remain in pastoral office. So here's what some Protestants tried to do. These are what, this is what some Puritans tried to do. They started their own independent congregations. Uh, there's one man we know of, Robert Brown. He tried to start a separatist congregation in Norwich. Uh, there's also a man named Henry Barrow who tried to start an independent congregation in London. Uh, that did not go well for them. They were imprisoned uh, they were banished. Um, actually, death was threatened for anybody who even attended those services. So, you know, they came down very hard and lessons were made of people. So here's what do the Puritans do during this time? I haven't used the word Puritan yet. We're going to talk more about the Puritans in a little bit. But let's just take the Puritans for granted. What did they do at this time? They kept their heads down and they carried on like good English people are supposed to do. And we'll talk more about about that shortly. Um, 
Elizabeth still tolerated much that was distasteful to Protestants. Um, she allowed patronage, for example. Patronage was where a minister would be appointed to a post and the person who appointed them would receive a kickback from the minister. So in essence, the minister would sort of pay to get into a position. He would either pay with favors, uh, pay with maybe he would give an ear to his patron, the person who was paying him to sort of be in that position. Um, Basically, Puritans absolutely hated this. Because the congregation has no say over who's, who's over them. Uh, they have no uh, voice. And not only that, but um, basically it's like simony, right? And they're, they're troubled by this. But it is a, a reality that apparently was a reality under Mary. And it was tolerated under Elizabeth. Um, in some ways perpetuated the, the abuses of Rome. They did some things that made it harder to be a Protestant in England. Um, you remember the black rubric I mentioned last week? You guys remember the black rubric, that little explanation that we're kneeling, but we're not kneeling because this is the body and blood of Christ? Well, they removed that. They removed it from the Book of Common Prayer. Why would they do that? They want to steer a middle way between Geneva and Rome, right? They want to be Cal- friendly to Calvinists, and they want to still get people who liked Roman Catholicism, give them some of what they remember. And so by removing the black rubric, they make it fuzzy as to what's going on in the Lord's Supper. Maybe this is the body and blood of Jesus and we should kneel. Or if you don't believe it's the body and blood of Jesus, well, you're still kneeling. But now we will leave it vague as to why you're kneeling. (laughs) So, you know, um, Eucharistic vestments are reintroduced Um, priests couldn't marry without the bishop's approval. So the bishop had to like meet your, your prospective wife, if you're a bishop and, uh, or a priest and get to know her first. So they don't force celibacy, but they also, they also want to have more control over your, uh, your married life. uh, If you're a pastor, uh, they did allow reforms, but only to a point and then no further. What you should know is this time period, the Elizabethan time period, is the beginning of what we sometimes call the Puritan Golden Age. The Puritan Golden Age is, if you want to be really vague about it, is 1560 to 1660. So 1560 to 1660 is the Golden Age. And we'll talk more about the Puritans in a moment. Um, But let's finish with Elizabeth. Um, We're not going to talk as much about James and Charles. We will have to talk about them. But... Elizabeth dies childless. Um, If you read a lot of historians, this seems like she did this on purpose. She seemed to not want to be married, and she seemed not to want to have a child. Um, And so she she doesn't. She has no children. When she dies, the closest relative to hers becomes king. Does anyone remember who becomes king after Elizabeth? James. James. Little James. James. Uh, James was the king of Scotland in 1567 when he was just an infant. So I think he was several months old when he's pronounced king. Could you just imagine the absurdity of this little baby being held up and crowned? Um, And that's what happens in Scotland. He becomes the king. Uh, He only ever knew life as a king. And upon Elizabeth's death, he becomes the English king. And and that's an advantage to, 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 in some people's minds, because now what is he doing? He's uniting Scotland and England together. Um, he's the Scottish king and he's the English king. At first, the Puritans are very excited. Puritans in England are very excited at the possibility that James is the king. Why? 
because James had been taught by Presbyterians. Uh, He had been taught by George Buchanan. George Buchanan was the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1567. And the Puritans are so excited. They think, this is going to be awesome. We've got a Presbyterian king. And then their high hopes for James get very quickly dashed. Because James was a Protestant. But he had no no patience for Roman Catholics. And he had no patience for Puritans. Um. So maybe, maybe George Buchanan should not have beaten him so often during his lessons. I don't know. Um, I think that was a normal thing back then. So, they, so the Puritans get together. About a, supposedly like a thousand Puritans sign this document. And they bring it to James. And they make these requests for James to reform the church. And he gives them nothing. Um, the only thing he gives them, and we will talk more about their concerns and the things they bring to him in a bit. The only thing that James gives them, does anyone know the one thing that James gives the Puritans that they ask for? A translation of the Bible. They want an English translation of the Bible, and they want it to be a new translation of the Bible. And so he okays it, and that's where we get our King James Version of the Bible. Um, I could tell the story of the writing of the King James Bible. It's wonderful, but we're just going to keep going. All right. So then what happens? Charles I reigns from, uh, from 1625 to 1649. The reason I'm bringing this up is because if you want to know where the Westminster Confession and Standards come from, you've got to understand the reign of Charles I. Charles I finds himself at loggerheads with the English Parliament, which was largely controlled by the Puritans. He had a, um, an archbishop named William Laud. Has anyone heard of William Laud before? No one loved William Laud. Like nobody. God loved him, but that was like it. Um, <laughs> William Laud was the biggest grump, the, um, the, just the scary guy. Um, he wants so like like there are I was I've got a book back home and I didn't bring it but it's full of all these stories about William Laud and how much people hated William Laud. William Laud like would William Laud found out one time that at Oxford somebody was praying and there were these young people who were laughing uh, off to the side and they weren't paying attention to the prayers and William Laud asked, well, what happened? What'd you do? And they said, oh, I, we severely beat the youths. So and and you know today we would go, what you beat them? Um, and William Laud is like, why are they still in school? And he, he had these kids kicked out of school for laughing during a prayer. Um, he would, um, um, man, well, my mind's going blank. I, listen, just look up William Laud sometime online and you'll just find all kinds of great stuff that William Laud did that, uh, that actually was terrifying. But no one loved William Laud except Charles. I guess Charles was like, yeah, let's keep him on the payroll as long as we can. So... What happens is this, Parliament, which is like, you know, Parliament and the King. They're supposed to be sort of working in conjunction. And Parliament and the King enters a period of civil war. Um, why did the civil war start? So there's a session of long Parliament that's going, of, of the Parliament that's going on, and Charles I enters the House of Commons, something no king had ever done during a meeting of Parliament because they were meant to be distinct. And he enters the House of Commons and he tries to arrest five men that he declares to be enemies of the crown, men who are in the Parliament. 
And Parliament considered this an act of war. It was a political disaster for Charles. They saw him as an invader instead of as a defender. And so that Parliament that was convened there doesn't stop. That's why it's called the Long Parliament. So the Long Parliament is, is, is a long parliament because it lasts 20 years. What's going on during those 20 years? Civil war. Civil war between Parliament and King Charles. Um, Let's see. The Civil War lasts seven years. So what happens? Parliament seizes control of London. Charles flees the capital. Uh, There's a seven-year war. Charles is eventually captured, and he's executed on charges of treason by the English Parliament. So if you are more interested in this and you want to know more about it and about the people that would do this, there's a book called Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I. And the author's name is Charles Spencer. And if that last name rings a bell, it's because he's Princess Diana's brother. Um, And the book was published in 2015. It reads like a novel. It's well written. My biggest complaint is that Spencer doesn't tell the story of why everybody had such a problem with Charles. (laughs) It It just begins with him arrested in the back of a wagon and blindfolded and taken by these guys who were true ruffians. Like the guys who, were, who killed Charles were not like a bunch of civilized uh, gentlemen. Um, but the short version is he was a tyrant, he was a traitor, he was a murderer and a public enemy. Those are the charges that were issued and that's why he was executed. So Charles I is executed by parliament. Eventually it was agreed that his son Charles II could return from exile and become the new king. Um, This is generally regarded as the end of the Puritan Golden Age. So the Puritan Golden Age lasts 1560 to 1660. But even then, you notice this, it's all during the time of Elizabeth. So the Puritans are never, quote unquote, in charge. Um, The closest you get to the Puritans actually being in charge is during the Long Parliament. During the Long Parliament, the majority of Parliament is made up by Puritans, And so I don't remember if this is in my notes, but it is really important for you to know that during the long parliament, they decided that England needed to have a systematic theology. They needed to have a confession of faith. And so they gathered the divines, which the divines would be like well-taught religious men from all over England. And they bring them all together in one place. And for a number of years, they write what is called a confession of faith. And they write a catechism. And they write a shorter catechism and a long catechism, a longer catechism. And they present the Westminster Confession of Faith to the parliament. The parliament votes to approve it, but it's not instated yet. Uh, What ends up happening instead is Charles II returns. So before they can actually implement the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Longer Catechism as part of England's church... Charles II returns. So instead, what happens to the confession? Well, the Presbyterians in Scotland are like, we love this thing. This is great. Uh, we'll take it as our confession. And so um, we're Presbyterians. We find, our, we find our heritage in Scotland. And our confession is the same confession that the Scottish Presbyterian Church has had uh, since the writing of it uh, in the 1560s uh, or in the 1600s. Yes, Benjamin. Since this is the history of worship, how do all of these dynasties incorporate worship then? So we're going to talk about, well, we've talked about some of the things that, that they permitted and the things that they allowed. But starting right about here, we're actually going to talk about what worship looked like during the time of Elizabeth. 
um, in specifically the Puritan era. So for the Puritans, how did they do worship? We're going to talk about that. But I already know for a fact, because we only have three minutes left, that I won't be able to get to it. So instead, all I want you to see is that I wanted to get at least to the birth of the Westminster Confession. Because we're going to talk in a little bit um, next week, I guess, about the directory of worship. The Puritans put together what was called a directory of worship that, that, that basically informed, we still have it as part of our church documents today. You can go and read the directory of worship. And what you see there is what the Puritans had in mind when it came to worship. And, and I will just give you a big fat spoiler. It's very similar to what we do on Sunday mornings. Um, you know, we use microphones. Uh, we use instruments. But other than that, uh, I think what we do is entirely what they did. I think that there's the, a, a, a Scottish Presbyterian from the 1600s would, would come here and they wouldn't understand our weird, strange, jangled dialect. Um, but they would probably, and I, they'd probably be able to pick some words out. Um, but they would, they would recognize the service. Um, so that is a very, I'm giving you a very lengthy history lesson here. Um, and the reason is because I want you to understand the, the, and you need to almost understand the objections of the Puritans. What are they objecting to? What's going on in England that they're so troubled by? And why is it that they're called the Puritans? We're going to talk about where they got their name from. And spoiler, it's, they, they weren't beloved. <laughs> they, they, they took the things of God very seriously in a way that sometimes made them enemies to people. Um, but, but this is a church that was birthed from Catholicism. And, and it was a reformation taking place from the top down, right? It wasn't grassroots in the way that Protestantism spread on the continent. Instead, this was a very top down thing, right? Henry comes in and puts Protestantism basically on the church. And the church has to get used to it. And then the church gets it yanked away, and then they get Roman Catholicism back, and then they lose the Roman Catholicism. And so you can imagine what's in people's blood, right? It's kind of muddy. <laughs> There's a little bit of everything in there. Um, but this is the soil from which our own church tradition grew, and it's the soil from which our worship, uh, our worship tradition is born. So, um, yeah. We will talk more next week specifically about the Puritans because I've only mentioned their names and I've not mentioned them. I've not mentioned what they did. I've not mentioned what they tried to do. I have not mentioned what their concerns were. And so all of that's next week. So next week we get a nice clean start and less of this king making and queen making and stuff like that. But you could hopefully you can at least see why I had to do this. Because it's a church that's got so many ups and downs. They're getting yanked in different directions. And it's all because of the political scene. Because this is a time when politics and religion are very closely wedded together. It's very hard to separate them from each other. And so with that, we'll stop. I'll pray for us. And we'll, we'll get back to this next week. We'll move a little further along. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are sovereign over all of history that history really is your story, that it really is your work among people who are sinners, who are flawed, um, who disappoint, uh, who sin against each other, Lord. And yet we also remember that you are sovereign over these things, that none of these things are accidents, that instead they happen because you are good and because you are wise and because you are holy. And so we pray that you would be at work in us this week, making us holy too. We pray that you would shape us to be more like Jesus. 
Give us a love for your people, a love for your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.